Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff. We received an awesome response for our episode on Harmony Montgomery in Manchester, New Hampshire. Harmony is still missing. She went missing in 2019 at age five. She was in the custody of her dad, Adam, Adam Montgomery, and he never reported her missing. He was, and maybe still is, a raging heroin abuser, as was mom. But they separated, and the Department of Children and Families in Massachusetts took custody for a short while from mom. Mom was deep in the throes of addiction and they ended up giving custody to adam who i don't know i don't know how that happened he had had a criminal record it's just a mess so massachusetts gives him custody he goes to new hampshire and his life just spirals out of control due to the drug abuse and it is believed that at the end of 2019 November, December 2019, that's the only time anybody can pinpoint Harmony Montgomery being alive. And they go to find Adam, they find him living in a car by his old house with a new girlfriend. That girlfriend goes on to overdose, guys. This woman who was living in the car with Adam fatally overdoses, and it's just crazy. The whole story is a cornucopia of addiction, abuse, and some would say murder. But the case is still open, and just this week, Adam Montgomery was indicted on some new charges, and they're pretty hefty charges, but they're unrelated to Harmony's disappearance. Adam had stole some guns, allegedly, and now he's been indicted, and the charges, the new charges, are pretty severe, especially in New Hampshire. One charge was armed career criminal, And then there's felony in possession of a firearm, theft, and receiving stolen property. So he's looking at decades in prison. In Massachusetts, I don't think he would be, to be quite frank. But they play a little differently up in New Hampshire. But Harmony Montgomery is still missing, guys. And there's a $150,000 reward here. And if you have any information on this case, please call the... Manchester, New Hampshire Police at 603-203-6060. That's 603-203-6060. If you have any information, give it up, guys. This kid deserves to be found, and she deserves justice. So, guys, I guess I stirred up a bit of a kerfuffle in last week's episode when I talked about capital punishment for a little bit. That's where I come down on it. If you have a different opinion, I can discuss that with you. 
You can email me. We can talk about it. We're adults. I got some emails where it didn't go that way, and I can't play that game anymore. We're just too busy here. So if you want to engage, please do so. But let's have some Marcus of Queensberry rules here. Be a lady, be a gentleman, and I'll be a gentleman back. Otherwise, what's the point of corresponding, right? But I didn't come to my conclusions on capital punishment easily, and I still review them to this day. But somebody honestly tell me, what was the correct sentence for Ted Bundy? And I know that's the extreme case. Obviously, the only justice for that guy is the electric chair, gas chamber, whatever he ended up getting. And let me tell you something about Ted Bundy, and there's been dozens of Ted Bundy since his execution. Ted Bundy was so brutal to women, the newspapers couldn't even print what he did. You have to go into the criminal justice journals, and I did when I was studying criminal justice sociology a little bit, and it's harrowing. He's basically eating people during these sessions of his. He was an animal and needed to be put down. Tell me otherwise. Barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys, we do have to jump back into the time machine today. So grab your hats. It is 1995. And this is a difficult case. And I have to give you a warning. It is very graphic, very, very graphic. And it may be one of the most graphic cases we've done to date. Although the Boston Strangler was pretty graphic as well. But this is your warning. This is a case of violence against women, and it is horrendous. So if you can't handle that type of episode, this may not be the one for you. But here we go. This case comes to us by the suggestion of one of our researchers, Mr. Fitzgerald. Mr. Fitzgerald, I believe, had suggested this one previously. I didn't have time for it back then, but we've been going back and forth, and... He had sent me some links, and man, this is just a harrowing case. So, Fitz, thanks so much. The victim in this case is named Laura Jane Rosenthal, but the case is more widely known as the Baked Ziti case or the Baked Ziti murder, and it is horrendous. And you wouldn't think this would happen to this couple. They were firing on all cylinders. In the 1990s, the husband... Richard Rosenthal was an executive with the John Hancock Insurance Company, and he was getting paid, I don't want to call it megabucks, but it was great money back then. He was making $96,000 a year as a managing financial analyst. I'm sure the actual job title is something different, but he did manage people and he was in financial services. And he was making ninety-six grand a year back in 1994, 1995. And that translates, guys, to about $184,000 in today's money. And that's a great living. His wife, Laura Jane, also worked there. She was in a different position in a different division. But he was pretty high-ranking there, and he was going places. And just to give you some perspective, if you see the Boston skyline, the tallest mirrored building, I believe it thought pretty highly of Mr. Rosenthal, still the tallest in Boston is the John Hancock Tower. It is, I believe, the biggest building until you get to New York. It's beautiful, landmark. If you've been to Boston, you may have actually been up in the John Hancock Tower. So the Rosenthal's met at work 
and Laura Jane Rosenthal was a head turner and I guess Mr. Rosenthal himself was a pretty good looking guy or at least thought to be. I guess you would qualify them today as a power couple, but the duo lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, which is a suburb probably, I don't know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes outside of Boston in the Metro West section of the suburbs. The Rosenthal's lived on Garvey Road, which back then I believe was mostly new construction or more new construction. But back then the home prices were about 300000 Today I would have to say they're over a million. People would say that Richard Rosenthal was a bit of an odd duck, super organized, almost to a fault. I think they might call it OCD today. But from all outward appearances, the marriage was solid. Things were going well. You're living in basically a mansion within a neighborhood of mansions, and people would see them walking their baby. And from the outside, it looked like the American dream. It would seem, though, it was actually the American nightmare. And that would come out later. But as things were going on, it just seemed good. Everything seemed good for the Rosenthal's. And if the name Rosenthal in Massachusetts rings a bell, we have a pretty remarkable Mark Rosenthal meteorologist who's pretty famous in this area, as famous as meteorologists can be. He seems like a great guy, Mark Rosenthal, the meteorologist. And his only connection to this case is being Richard Rosenthal's brother. So that brings us to late August, guys. Actually, August 28th, 1995, the Rosenthal's were home having dinner. Richard Rosenthal had made some baked ziti, and the couple reportedly got into an argument over Richard burning the ziti or overcooking it or something like that. Hence the more familiar name of this case, the baked ziti case. So the argument continues, and it is alleged, I guess it isn't alleged anymore, but Richard strangled Laura Jane in the house and then took her body outside, and then he did the absolute unspeakable to her. He took a, ah, geez, this is difficult. He took a butcher knife and cut her post-mortem from navel all the way up her torso, and he removed her organs, her heart, and her lungs, and placed them on an 18-inch wooden stake in the backyard. He then, after he placed the organs on the stake, returns to Laura Jane and smashes her face in with a softball-sized rock to the point where she was totally, and I mean totally, unrecognizable. So I believe this happened around dinner time. I'm not exactly sure when the homicide itself took place, but afterwards the authorities could track it a little more easily. But what is said that happened afterwards, and I'm assuming it's dinner time, 7, 7.30, something like that. Now he does this dastardly deed, and he gathers up his daughter, who was named Mala Kate Rosenthal, and she was four months old at the time. And he gathers her up, gets some diapers, I believe a bottle, and all this stuff, puts her in the back of the car in her car seat, and takes off. 
he also changes clothes and puts his bloody clothes in a plastic bag, which is then placed in the back seat of his car. And it is said from that point, he kind of drives around aimlessly. But if what had just transpired isn't crazy enough for you, it gets a little more insane. At a certain point, Rosenthal's driving around and he sees a car with a license plate, a Massachusetts license plate that says 357-BAN. So it would be 357-BAN, right? And he took this to mean, and I don't know if I totally buy this, but in court he'd later say that he took that license plate to mean that the operator of that vehicle wanted to ban 357 Magnum handguns, and this license plate was a statement in favor of gun control. What this goofball didn't realize is the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles just gave it out. It was a regular plate, and that was the luck of the draw for that guy. So he engages this guy and his wife in some type of conversation. The guy explains to him, you know, no, it's just luck of the draw. It's not a vanity plate. He didn't pay extra to get that. I guess you probably could have, but he didn't. And Rosenthal goes back and forth. He goes, oh, I thought you wanted to ban guns and all this. And they have this conversation right by the guy's house in Marlboro, Massachusetts, which is in proximity to Framingham where the Rosenthal's lived. But they noticed some blood on this guy and he was acting bizarrely. And I believe the guy's wife goes into the house and calls the police at that point because he was just so whacked. So I've seen some reports that the person with the license plate, Band 357, was in Marlboro. I've also heard reports it was in Hudson. They are neighboring towns, so I don't even know how much it matters, but I've heard it was the Hudson police that responded, and I've also heard it was the Marlboro police that responded. And it's so long ago. And what difference does it make? There's so much evidence in this case. But I just wanted to let you know about that discrepancy. But the cops arrive and they notice that Mr. Rosenthal has blood on him. And they ask him, you know, what's going on with the blood? He's not in custody at this time. This is like just a threshold type inquiry. And he says, oh, that's blood. I got into an argument. I burned the ZD. And then he'd go on to say, I did an awful thing. And now they look in the back and there's bloody clothes and the babies in the back in the car seat and all that. But man, there's blood everywhere, really. When you look closely, he had changed his clothes, but he still had blood on him. So the police end up getting him down to the police station. I don't know if they make an arrest. I don't think they arrest him. They asked him to come down for questioning, right? This guy wasn't going anywhere. He had blood all over the place, acting like a loon. The police did a good job. They get him down there. And he says that I've done a terrible thing and I need a lawyer. So all questioning stops. And at that point, they go to the Rosenthal home on Garvey Road in Framingham. And they look in the back. It's a harrowing thing, right? There's so much blood on the lawn that the cops could barely walk on it. And the body was disposed of under some mulch. But there, right on that stake... It's Laura Jane Rosenthal's organs, guys. It must have been a horrible scene, right? Imagine that it's, you know, night shift. You're on the Framingham PD. You get called to go to the house. And you're going to do a well-being check, basically. 
And man, she is eviscerated and her organs are out and her face has been bashed in. Guys, she was abused so badly that they had to list her, at least momentarily, as a Jane Doe. They couldn't confirm who she was from pictures or anything else. They knew who she was, but it has to be accurate in the police report. They had to put it down as a Jane Doe. Imagine that. So Rosenthal, I think, ends up with a pretty good attorney. But before that, he starts formulating an insanity defense. And I think this was in the works before he committed this homicide. And I'll tell you why. In 1994, the Rosenthals had a son, and he died quickly after birth because he had fluid around his heart and in his lungs. Heart and lungs, guys. Are you with me so far? So the baby dies quickly after birth, and it's stated that Richard Rosenthal basically blames his wife and holds her to account for this and can't get over it. And they'd go on and have another baby later in the year. And it was a daughter. And her name was Mala Kate Rosenthal. By all accounts, a beautiful little girl, happy little girl. You would think it would take some of that grief away. It didn't. Richard Rosenthal ignored this kid. He couldn't get over the death of his son, and he blamed his wife. And again, the cause of death was fluid around the heart and lungs. And what was placed on that stake, guys, that 18-inch wooden stake, was Laura Jean Rosenthal's heart and lungs. I think that's a bit of a message. This was something I didn't know prior to researching this case, and I remember it pretty vividly. I think we all do here in the New England region, you know. So I believe Mr. Rosenthal is appointed an attorney, and they had money, so this guy did cost a lot of money back in the day, and his firm still does today. The attorney's name is Norman Zalkind, and he's kind of a genius defense attorney in the Boston area. He's got to be elderly now. I don't know if he's practicing. I believe his son or daughter took over the practice, but he was a legend. So naturally, after they find the body in the backyard under the mulch and what was on the stake in the backyard, actually, guys, the fire department had to come in after they removed the evidence because there was so much blood on the grass, on the lawn, the fire department had to come wash it away. They were afraid it would attract animals and all this other stuff. People who've seen that crime scene, they say they've never been the same. I can't imagine what that had to have been like. All right, so at that point, when they recover the body, the Massachusetts State Police take over the homicide investigation. And they start pretty quickly unraveling Richard Rosenthal. It had come to light during their investigation that Laura Jane Rosenthal was an abused woman. On two occasions, I believe just before she had her baby boy earlier in 94, and then sometime just before that, there are two separate instances where Laura Jane came into work at John Hancock Insurance with black eyes. On the first occasion, another guy, a friend of Richard, says, hey, I saw your wife, she's got a black eye, and they were pretty severe, and they get to talking about it, he says, oh, yeah, she walked into a door. But this guy wasn't having it. He kind of put it on him, and they get to talking about it. And he says, yeah, you know, I may have pushed her because we were having an argument. So that's number one. 
Number two, she goes around and tells people that she walked into a door. So it's just BS. That's textbook domestic violence. And in the workplace in the 1990s, you know, they weren't situated for this. So they didn't know how to respond. I believe today, I think somebody would go right up to Richard Rosenthal's office and say, you're suspended. And they'd call the police. I honestly think that would happen today because John Hancock would have some legal liability there, I think. Then the state police get to talking to more friends of Laura Jane's around the workplace, and she was afraid of them. That's what came out. And so the defense starts to drum up this insanity defense. Well, the prosecution, on the other hand, is treating this as a strict domestic violence homicide. And I believe they were right because Laura Jane's heart and lungs on that stake, you can't tell me that's a coincidence when the baby died of inflammation or fluid around the heart and fluid in the lungs. That's not a coincidence, guys. And then this BS story where he sees 357 ban on a license plate, I think it flips in this guy's head. What am I going to do with myself? I think he was driving around contemplating another homicide and his suicide. He just didn't have the guts to do it. And so he sees that license plate, follows them, and he sees an opportunity, right? Much like in his business with stock, he sees an opportunity and he takes it. He saw an opportunity to lay the groundwork for a insanity defense, and that's what he was doing with this conversation with those people at their house who were driving 357 ban, right? So insanity defenses really don't work. They don't work nationally, and for whatever reason, they almost never work in Massachusetts because it's a line, you know? You can be off. You can have some mental illness and still be culpable for homicide, right? And they rolled the dice on this one. And I got to tell you, it's a bizarre story. So the defense story is this. Richard Rosenthal wholeheartedly believed that his wife had been replaced by an enemy alien vampire. So this made me want to laugh a little bit. The only thing in this goddamn case that does, right, is the defense. And he had to kill her because of, I don't know, it's just so hard to believe, right? And I guess that's why it's insane. But there was also some diatribe over some interaction with a dead rat. I'm not going to get into it because it's just horseshit. But it's so convoluted and foolish. So I think it was kind of ingenious by the assistant district attorney in this case to just go full domestic violence case. They really didn't get into the death of the Rosenthal's first child with the heart and lung problems because it just would get convoluted. They went straight domestic violence, and I think that was the way to go. They pointed to the fact that Rosenthal, at least a little bit, tried to hide the body under the mulch and all this, and they said, you know, if you have to kill an enemy alien vampire, why would you have to hide the body? They also relied on the fact that he said to the police in one of their first statements was that he had done something awful. So the Commonwealth says that's consciousness of guilt, and a delusional person wouldn't react like that. He was interviewed by the state's doctor and found him organized, thoughtful, and all that. 
and he didn't appear to be delusional. So they said he was fit to stand trial, and he did so. So the trial goes on, and Norman Zalkine actually does a great job. He's done many insanity defenses, and he's an excellent attorney. But I got to tell you, I think it really boils down to the fact that the jurors are sitting there, and they see pictures of Laura Jane's heart and lungs on a stake. And they know there's a baby involved here. And now it's apparent through the testimony that he's been beating this woman for years. And he comes up with enemy alien vampire defense? Come on. Like, you're sitting there in the jury box. Are you going to risk sending that guy to a mental hospital for a decade and then he gets out? I don't think you are. You're not going to take that risk. I wouldn't take that risk. And if this guy's mentally ill, right, send him to prison. Let them deal with him. I'm not going to have this guy ever get out of the joint. So nobody's surprised when the jury comes back with a guilty verdict. It's guilty first-degree murder. And that triggers an automatic life sentence in Massachusetts without the possibility of parole. And that's exactly what Richard Rosenthal deserved. Maybe more. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that debate. Maybe more he deserved. But I honestly believe that this is just a convoluted BS story from a serial abuser. What happened was they have that argument at dinner and he loses it and he kills her. And now it's an oh shit moment. And he does what he does with that heart and lungs because of his son. That's what that was about. Make no mistake. I believe that wholeheartedly. You know, why not the liver and the pancreas? You know what I mean? That was the double-barreled middle finger to the wife. Sorry. And then he knows there's evidence everywhere. His wife's now dead. There's blood everywhere. He has to have something. So while he's driving around, and I believe the murder happened between like 7 and 7.30, and he ends up with the cops at that house at about midnight, and he'd been driving around with the baby all that time. And like I say, I think he was contemplating another homicide, I don't want to say the words, and his own suicide. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to hurt himself, and maybe he had those feelings towards the baby as well. But I do believe he thought he was justified in what he did because he blamed Laura Jane for the death of his son, and he couldn't get over it for whatever reason. There were some stories after the daughter, Marla Kate, came along that he just totally ignored that child. And at one point, he was out in the kitchen doing something, grinding coffee or some nonsense, while the baby was in another room and he had tied her to a changing table. And that was a source of contention in the marriage that he just was not engaging whatsoever with Marla Kate. And so naturally, that sets the wife off. So maybe things weren't good at home, but... His focus was killing his wife. It wasn't on killing an enemy alien vampire, right? So Rosenthal gets the only punishment available for first-degree homicide, life without parole. And he goes off to the joint, but he files an appeal. And the date I see on the appeal is 2000, the year 2000. The appeal's denied. He appealed on several cases, something about the insanity claim. And there were some other things that shouldn't have been allowed in. It was your typical Hail Mary appeal. 
I didn't really read the legal reasoning. I just like to get, when I get those cases from findlaw.com and whatever, it really gives you a good source because it gives you a really good synopsis of the case, the prosecutor's synopsis. And it also provides some insight into the defense as well. But the appeal was naturally denied. And Mr. Richard Rosenthal is still in the joint today. And he's housed at the O'Colony Correctional Center, which is a medium security prison in Massachusetts. I've heard it's not hard time, but they're not going out. He's a lifer. And if you ever want to read about how people serve life sentences in Massachusetts, Google this. Google Howie Carr and Life is Club. Howie Carr is a local legend around here, and he had blown the lid off the case where these lifers were having parties, they were having seminars, Christmas where they'd have roasted duck, ham, and all this other stuff. So if you want to chuckle to see how these asshats are living, Google that. The article should come up. It was later said some of the jurors who were on the case said those black eyes where Laura Jane had gone into her workplace at John Hancock in 1990 and 1993. In 1990, it was one side of her face, and in 1993, I think it was the other side. So it was two black eyes, and people were starting to look askance at Mr. Rosenthal. Like I said, I think if that happened today, John Hancock would have taken some action. And if they had taken it back then, maybe Laura Jane would be alive today. You can't put all the blame on John Hancock, though. It's all Mr. Rosenthal. He was crazy. He wasn't insane. I think he was just the vindictive, abusive bastard. And so Mr. Richard Rosenthal is right where he belongs. And I think that's all I have for you in this one. It's a harrowing case. Good police work. Guy's right where he needs to be. Never able to hurt anyone else again. I don't know whatever came of Marla Cade. I'm sure the Rosenthal family or Laura Jane's family took custody. And I heard it said that Richard Rosenthal's dad at the trial tried to make some type of peace with Laura Jane's family and went on to say, Laura Jane was our daughter-in-law too, and we loved her and we missed her. We miss her still, you know? And I don't know how that ever went. I don't know how you'd work that out among the families because you've got to take care of this Mala Kate, you know? An innocent victim and all this. So hopefully things worked out for her. If you get a chance, say a prayer for Mala Kate and be thankful that she's away from all that mess, I guess. But I think that's all I have for you on this one, guys. If you need to get a hold of me, reach out at barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'm going to get on to the next one for you, and I'll see you on the flip side, you dig? Mm -hmm.